Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Uh, today we have another re-release of one of my favorite. It's actually the most listened to podcast in Newsworthy or Norisworthy history. Uh, but before we get to that, let me tell you about my alma mater, the Abilene Christian University Graduate School of Theology. Now, they offer opportunities to engage with a community of learners and disciples dedicated to the formation and equipping of Christian leaders for a changing world. They strive to be a community that is serious about intellectual rigor and spiritual formation. Both of those things, intellectual rigor and spiritual formation. To that end, they offer a variety of academic and ministry-oriented MA degrees tracks, along with a Master's of Divinity and even a doctorate of ministry for you overachievers, all of which are designed to cultivate virtuous curiosity and skills for ministry and scholarship. They work to teach you how to think, not just what to think. Now, they are seminary based in lovely, historic, scenic Abilene, Texas, accredited by the ATSC, Association of Theological Schools, with globally renowned faculty who are both experts in their fields and spiritual leaders in their faith communities. Now, if you're interested in learning more, check out acu.edu backslash GST or email them at AC or excuse me at GST at acu.edu. Okay, now on to the Richard Roar. This is the first in-person podcast I did with Roar. Uh, you're not going to be bothered by having, you know, a New Zealander named Paul Nevison interrupting as he's quote unquote running sound, or you're not going to have. You know, the pseudo-Catholic, because he has a Notre Dame degree, Jason Miller in the background, him hauling around about something. This is just going to be straight, mano a mano, Richard Rohr, Luke Norsworthy. Uh, this was originally released uh, back in 2015, March of 2015, uh, as a two-part podcast, but... We're going to make this one big, mega, long podcast so you can hear the full conversation here. Uh, one of the things that's endearing, maybe just to me, but maybe to you, is that I tell a story about Avery saying that she is six years old. And guess what? Just a few weeks after this podcast airs, she'll be turning 11. Oh. Well, I'm going to go drown my tears in a vat of ice cream, uh, but you... Seriously, you're going to get ready for some awesome, because Richard Rohr, first time in person, this was outstanding. We've got Enneagram stuff we talk about. We talk about male spirituality. Uh, we talk about the uh, the interest of so many of you evangelically people like myself who have found connection to Father Richard Rohr's work. Um, a, a lot of really good stuff in here. So I am very happy for you to listen to this one. If you haven't heard it for the first time, uh, and this is your first time, just... I'm happy for you. Again, five years old, but it's still it, it's still fresh as um, fresh as the morning dew. I don't know if that's an expression, but it should be. But anyway, here you go. Least I can do for you. <laughs> Fly on this far, my. You know, it's really my pleasure. I mean, I, I, I'm just thrilled that you made the time for me. All right, you ready? It's working. Yeah, we're good to okay. go. Okay. All right. Welcome back to the show, friends. Today, we're coming to you from beautiful Albuquerque, New Mexico, with our guest returning to the show, Father Richard Rohr. Welcome to the show. Very glad to be with you. Thank you. Yeah, we're, I'm excited to be here. I was. I, I told my six-year-old daughter that I was flying out here today, and she goes, well, how long are you going to be in Albuquerque? And I said, just one day. And she goes, oh, so it's like a play date. 
<laughs> Only little girls. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, it's kind of like a play day. How long have you been in Albuquerque now? Actually, I've lived here 29 years now. This has become home. Even though many of those years I was on the road around the world. But this was home base, and it still is. Now, my Uber driver on the way here was telling me that this is the more kind of uh, local part of Albuquerque. There's the Heights, which is kind of more of a newer upscale development, but this is kind of old school Albuquerque. This would be the Mexican barrio. I'm a Franciscan, and we usually have always tried to locate uh, in the poorer part of the city so we could be identified with the poor, and that would be the South Valley of Albuquerque. So what have you found being here? You know, uh, first thing, despite all the bad press we got with Breaking Bad. and Have you watched it yet? Uh, I haven't. I've just heard about it. Well, last time we <laughs> talked, you said you hadn't seen it, and I was just <laughs> flabbergasted. I, you know, I'm not a big TV person, uh, beyond news shows and so forth. But, you know, I've never experienced any violence or any... It's always the safest, happiest, easiest place in the world. And I live in a poor part of town, hmm. so... Uh, uh, we've, we've got a bad rap in recent years. Huh? Well, I'm glad that you're changing that rap. And We're you, trying. And yeah. you're definitely... Uh, true story. I'm flying in. The people next to me in the airplane ask me, what are you doing out here? And I tell them, and I tell mm-hmm. them who I'm talking to, and they, they look you up on the internet, and they found a picture of you from your website, and they go, wow, he looks really happy. He looks like a happy guy. <laughs> they would bother to do that. They, isn't, I, isn't that amazing? They might stalk you, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't know exactly. Well, okay, so one of the things that, that's happened, I'm sh- you told me last time, is that you have this following with young Protestant males, even yeah. though that's not your background. Like you said, you're Franciscan. Yeah. And so it's, it's really interesting for me how you have kind of created this presence in the evangelical community, even though you're not evangelical. You know, it really surprises me, too. And uh, I just did a conference with Rob Bell out on the West Coast a couple weeks ago. And most of that crowd was young, evangelical pastors, male. Really? I think there's a couple reasons for it. First of all, my love of Scripture. My education is in Scripture. I try to validate what I'm saying because so often it sounds different to people. Mm -hmm. With a good scripture quote, and it's not hard to find usually. The other reason is for 15 years up here at Ghost Ranch in northern New Mexico, I gave these male initiation rites. And that whole appeal to the male psyche, the male soul, just made sense to a lot of evangelicals. I think they maybe lacked some of the, the sacramental ritual mythological, poetic approach to spirituality while I was still scriptural. So it, it, it became a whole package. Yeah, That's my understanding because it still surprises me why they listen to me. Okay, one of the many wonderful stories you tell is you talk about after World War II, and I don't know which book this is, but in World War II, after the war was over, there's a ceremony that the Japanese did for their soldiers in which they said something to the extent of, the war is over. We need you back part of the community more than just a soldier. Now, I'm kind of making all that up. No, you're, that, does you're that sound on right? the right track. That's it. Okay, so I, I read that in one of your books. I don't remember yes. which one. But it stuck with me because that's, that's right. Like, I, yes. there, there are no ceremonies like that no. for us. We're a ritually starved culture. Protestants even more than Catholics because they 
you know, sort of threw out rituals as if they were all superstitious. But if you look at all rites of passage in every culture and age of history, ritual experience was a way for people to know things without the lecture method, mm. to ritually experience something. And uh, we're finding that, in fact, the very phrase, rites of passage, seem to indicate by people's studies of it that when you move from one stage of a life to another, you need a ritual to, to ceremonialize that. Really? And I think that's very true for war. Yeah, that makes no. a lot of sense for war, as I think of someone who's maybe not a part of war, but just becoming from a young man to being a father. Yes, yes. yes. What, what kind of rituals would you prescribe for that? Well, uh, most of this is in my book, uh, Adam's Return. But let me say this much, that what we found is males in particular don't take rituals seriously if they're too pretty and too churchy and too nice. They almost have to be raw and real and earthy. And, uh, you know, if they're out in nature and they, they stretch you outside of your comfort zone just a little bit, maybe mm -hmm. not too much, those are the ones the men really get into. It's, it's uncanny. They, they know if it's too easy or too pretty, it's not challenging them. So it needs to be something where sweat is created and mud is the surrounding. That's that's a way of saying it. Yeah. Now, yeah. Sometimes people push back on, I don't know if you read the book Wild at Heart, but there's a lot of pushback that they are saying there's only one type of, you know, male experience where it's kind of, I like to hunt, I like to watch football, I like sports, mm. I like dogs. And in some ways it might exclude other guys as, as saying your type of male yeah. is not really male. What? That's real sensitive that you can see that. Really, like the, the five-day initiation rites that I created some years ago, the amazing thing is the entire five-day event is probably appealing to both ends of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. For example, we use a lot of poetry, uh, a lot of silence, dance, things that maybe are threatening to the macho man. Do you understand? Yeah. So uh, it, it, you've got to move across the whole spectrum if it's going to be a holistic male experience. So you, you had me when it was like hard work and mm. outside. You kind of lost me with the dance thing. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know if I can go there. What mm. kind of dancing are we doing? Well, you know, all of it was spontaneous. It was. Okay. We used drums a lot. And uh, you, usually by the last evenings, the men are so free with themselves and with one another that invariably a few guys get up and start moving around the campfire. Not invariably, always, always. Really? And within a while, they're all doing it. There's know? not alcohol involved, is no, there? No, no, okay. we, don't, we don't have alcohol. <laughs> all right, alcohol. just checking. No, no, that's worth asking. <laughs> uh, because that would be an artificial high. Hmm. And what we want is... Uh, an actual inner high mm -hmm. that we hope is engendered by the spirit and not just by alcohol. Yeah. Okay. So you're uh, with bell down on Laguna beach a couple weeks ago. Yes. You're talking to a bunch of young evangelical pastors. When you see that audience, what are you thinking? This is what the audience has to hear. Like what do these young evangelical pastors need the most? 
You know, um, now this is just what's coming off the top of my head. I hope it's right. But they want a bigger theology than most of them were given. Bigger theology. <laughs> yeah, in other words, and they, they know that's my background, spirituality and theology. And most of them were given a wonderful start with a love for God, Jesus, the gospel. But when they really had to confront the the paradoxical issues of life, the, the, the people who don't fit in by whatever criteria. Very often they don't have the moral theology, the spiritual theology, to know how to address that in a spiritual way. Let's say the gay issue. You okay. know? There's no, I don't know what to do with it. It's just black and white. You know, mm-hmm. And I think it's there where I can give them something that I believe is faithful to Scripture and tradition, but also gives them much larger horizons than simply quoting laws. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and that tends to be very helpful. I also, as a Franciscan, we had a much larger Christology. Uh, our appeal was the hymn in Colossians, the hymn in Ephesians, the prologue to John's Gospel, what we call the cosmic Christ. Mm-hmm. The Christ who very clearly in those three passages I just mentioned existed from all eternity. You mm-hmm. know, Jesus comes about in the moment of time as the revelation of the eternal cosmic Christ that mm-hmm. always existed. And to open up that uh, for a lot of evangelicals is very exciting because they know it's scriptural, but they've hardly ever been told about it. You know, okay. it's, You can only see what you're told to pay attention to. And they were never told to pay attention to that. Yeah. So I like this. We'll we'll come back to cosmic Christ. Sure. I definitely want to talk about that. As you're talking like a, a, a larger theology, it a, a, as a mystic, as a, a mystic person who engages in spirituality, you've talked. I think you've even defined mysticism as uh, exchanging like a belief set for like an inner experience. Isn't that kind of the language you yes. use? Yes. When your knowledge is not based in merely. Uh, church teaching or belief or belonging to a group. I believe this because I belong to this group and this is what this group believes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when you actually begin to have inner experience of God, mm-hmm. of grace, of the divine, where you don't say they told me or you don't even say scripture told me, not that that's wrong to say that. Easy now. But, <laughs> but you say, I know. Yeah. I know. Okay, so I've been trying to process this because I think that's part of my fascination with your work and what you've been doing is as an evangelical, it seems like my spiritual trajectory starts with like this first phase where it's I can get all the answers and I can understand things and I can read enough and study enough and I've got something. And then I go in the second phase and I realize that I don't have all the answers and I'm trying to wrestle with Okay, what do I do when I can't get the answers that I thought I had? And those are the things that I held on to. And those are the things that gave me meaning and direction. And then you go to this like third phase where you learn to be okay with the unknowing. And you learn to accept this is part of the journey. And you can have this inner experience instead of just a set of beliefs, which you realize you're not as right about those beliefs as you thought you were. <laughs> and like that's the mystic stuff that I think you, you give that connects with us. Well, that makes me happy. You're explaining it very well. You know, I don't want to be unfair or, or pushy at all, but it's only what you just call the third stage that we can rightfully talk about faith. Hmm. You know, the very word faith 
implies not knowing. (laughs) And it's just amazing to me that after the Enlightenment of the 17th, 18th centuries, most later Christians assumed that the gospel gave them a 100% right to know everything. You know, they, they basically turned around the meaning of biblical faith 180 degrees. Hmm. You know, yeah. This isn't faith anymore. Yeah. This is a philosophy that grants the ego solitude of being certain all the time. You mm-hmm. know? I mean, it's very clear in the Hebrew scriptures, in the Christian scriptures, that a faith is that being held by God so that you don't have to hold yourself. You know, mm-hmm. And all this self-holding, if I can call it that, whereby I'm certain about everything. I've got an answer for everything. That hasn't created very deep Christianity. It really hasn't. It's, it's created people with answers, not really people with meaning or hmm. deep meaning. You see? Yeah. Meaning is a combination of knowing and not knowing. And that makes your knowing much more humble, much more patient, and much more compassionate. It's okay. what we would like to think a Christian should be, I would think. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that, mm-hmm. I, my mind is blown when you said meaning is knowing and unknowing together. At, at the same time. At that, faith is. Faith is the combination. Of both of those. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now that, and this is a, you know, a very quick and dirty separation, but like in the West, <laughs> like that's not how we think. But no, no. in the East, it seems like that's more yes, yes. something they'd be comfortable with. It comes much more comfortably to the Eastern world, the Eastern mind is different than the Western mind. And that's why the very notion of what we call non-duality, not either-or thinking, is found in Taoism, Hinduism, Buddhism. When I preach, if there's Asians in the crowd, they just nod when you're talking this way. Whereas the Western mind and the Western languages that you and I enjoy are much more formed out of Greek, clear logical head yeah. principles it, yeah. it's either or yeah either or and that that is um, catholicism after the reformation where we you see we, we, after the reformation remember we were the only game in town till the 16th century in yeah. the west right yeah after we began to have a necessary reforming i'm all for the reformation don't get me wrong but it got us both into the antagonistic mind where we needed to prove that we were right and the other group, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. in our era or country, was wrong. Now, once you get into that kind of either-or, all-or-nothing thinking, you don't create wise people. You create people who want answers. Now, right on the heels of the Reformation is this strangely called phenomenon, the Enlightenment, the 17th and 18th centuries, when Europe discovers reason logic, you know, the rational mind. So what happens to all of us, Catholics and Protestants, is we get very defensive because all of the intelligentsia and universities of Europe are throwing out the Bible, throwing out God, throwing out belief. And so strangely what happens to us is we desperately want certitude so we don't look so dumb. Do you understand? We, yeah. we, we want to stay smart inside of the intellectual conversations. And so a new kind of Christianity emerges in the last 300 years especially, which 
has little relationship to the first thousand years. It, it doesn't understand not knowing. <laughs> it thinks it has a right to know. It thinks it has a right to have answers to everything. And to be perfectly honest, Luke, it's created a kind of arrogance that makes a lot of people not like Christians today. Really? Because they, they think we're so damn sure of ourselves all the time with sometimes very faint evidence for what we're so sure of. Yeah. And especially lack of evidence when they see that we're not compassionate or we're not forgiving. The very things, of course, that Jesus Those are kind told of big us. Deals. Yeah. Yeah. He, sort of big deal. Yeah, he talks about that a lot. <laughs> a lot. Here yeah. you go. And so I think your language of the three phases is it's construction, deconstruction, reconstruction. Excellent. You yeah. remember. Good. Check that off. Give me a star. Don't start. <laughs> okay, so when you talk about like these uh, developmental stages, yes. um, you know, Freud obviously has his and the you know, stage theory is what I think our, our friends sure. in the psychological world will talk about it. And when you talk about this, is it like you go through these stages, you go from the first half of life to the second half of life, or is it an ongoing process like we're always going through this construction, deconstruction, reconstruction? You asked it very well, Luke. And that's why one of these developmental psychologies calls it spiral dynamics. Mm -hmm. It's much more, you get it, you lose it, you go back and need to construct for a while, you allow deconstruction. Now, you're, you're strict conservative in the philosophical definition of the term, never allows the deconstruction stage. That's their weakness. They will not allow their system to be criticized. Hmm. You understand? If you criticize Texas, well, you're, you're bad. Well, you're, you're that, bad. <laughs> okay, that's a terrible example because that's actually true. That is true. But other times, yes, you shouldn't question. And see, what the liberal does philosophically, they get trapped in the second stage of deconstruction. And they're they, always picking things they over, apart. Always picking things apart. They over, you get sick of it. You know? Do you have to have a theology of suspicion about everything? Do you mm -hmm. see? Both of us, each in our own way, liberals and conservatives, avoid reconstruction. And that, for me, is when real faith begins. Okay, so the conservative doesn't reconstruct because she or he has never deconstructed. That's right. So they confuse construction, your first ego construct of what the world means, mm -hmm. what I call the first half of life mm -hmm. in my book, Falling Upward. They just stay there forever and keep shoring up their boundaries. Why my country is the best, my religion is the best, my state is the best, my gender is the best. And really, for a person at the reconstruction stage, you, it's hardly worth even fighting. It's you just don't have you any, just you don't have any time for it anymore. It's you understand. It's, so okay, you just go on to b people who are ready for real life instead of people, who, because basically that's intense narcissism. Do you understand? You're you're entrapped in yourself, and until you can move enough beyond yourself to critique your own game, mm -hmm. whatever your game is, uh, you you really aren't capable of of very high consciousness or high spirituality. Yeah. yeah. I think a lot of people who listen to, to my podcast are people who are, who are willing to question. And so their struggle is not an inability to critique the faith maybe they grew up with. I bet you're right. But yeah. the inability or the struggle to get from you know, deconstruction to reconstruction. There you go. And I so agree. We right. have this, like you, you just described it, a theology of suspicion where mm. 
I don't know if I can really say this because it might be you know someone else on the internet might yeah. come back and critique it. Yes. What helps us get from that stage to reconstruction? Well, I'm going to give what surely sounds like a too spiritual answer, but I think it's God experience. When you've experienced divine love, divine mercy, knowing you totally did not deserve it, unless you're convinced of that, that you did not earn it, did mm-hmm. not deserve it, did not merit it. That's the thing that breaks down dualistic thinking. As long as you can live in any kind of quid pro quo, tit for tat, I did this much, I got this much back, you remain in the world that I call meritocracy, merit badge systems. That's where almost all people live. And I want to point out, we're both Americans, but America has made the capitalistic mind of earning and achieving and meriting uh, the whole world. It's, it's our entire worldview. So we get a double whammy. If you're American and first half of life, it's all about earning and meriting, do you see? Yeah. So something has to break that down to move you into the world of grace, hmm. of superabundance, where I always like to say, where you stop counting. <laughs> You stop counting how much you've given and how much you deserve, how much that person has not given and how much they don't deserve. That game has to die. And Luke, it doesn't die easily. No. Right? It doesn't die easily. It's, it, you, most people, in my experience, don't get there to what I call the second half of life, yeah. chronologically. You have to see again and again where the meritocracy system isn't true. It doesn't work. This person is poor and a person of color, but if I'd be honest, they're ten times more loving than I am. Mm -hmm. Something like that. This person is gay, but in fact they love Jesus more than I do. Something has to break down your glib assertions of right and wrong, in and out, good and bad. And the ego does not surrender to that easily. It doesn't sound very fun. It's no. not. It feels like dying. But, yeah, yeah. It feels like dying. It's almost like all spirituality is about letting go or something. Got- <laughs> I've heard that before. Don't you? Don't you have a like a, a big five things that uh, kind of open no. you up to that kind of stuff? You know, since I wrote that in my book Naked Now, I've added a sixth, which as a young man I know you'll understand. <laughs> the, the five, the five I listed in the book that are above the ceiling, the dualistic mind of tit for tat, right and wrong, good and bad, black and white, serves you well while you're driving down the highway. Everything's sort of thing. But there's five things, now six, above the ceiling that your normal dualistic mind cannot process. And you need, frankly, a spiritual mind to process it. Here are the five. Love. Love is not rational by any stretch of the imagination. Suffering, why the reason so many, especially unjust suffering, why so many people have given up on God or left the church is when unfair suffering comes into their family. It's totally illogical. And the worst suffering, of course, death. Death itself. Mm -hmm. The death phenomenon shakes us all to the core as to what does this life mean, especially when someone dies young. Yeah. are out of due time. Uh, so love, suffering, death. Fourth, any notion of eternity or infinity. 
You know, when I was in college, we were told there were billions of stars. Now we are rather certain there are billions of galaxies. So much so that they now say if there's six billion people on this planet, there there's a galaxy for every one of us. Really? My, now you can't think that. No. I can't. There's. No. I could even get to the movie Interstellar. <laughs> that one blew my mind. Oh, I want to see that. I haven't, but. It's see Breaking just, Bad first, okay. But yeah, you, okay. okay. But you see the transcendence of all of that. Yeah, I, I, I've been told about it, so I want to. But do you notice how we just? I, I don't know how to talk anymore. I yeah. just say the word six billion. So any notion of eternity or infinity, the mind just boggles and closes down. The sixth one, which we should have been aware of, but we're not, is any honest notion of God. Every. Mm-hmm word you and I use for God, even the precious word Jesus that you and I would use, is still a metaphor. Do you understand? It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's like, it's like, it's like. I mean, we have words Father and Holy Spirit, which are different than Jesus. Do you understand? Mm-hmm. So right there we're saying each one is an approximation, a, a simile, a metaphor. It's like. So God talk, if it's humble and honest, always has to admit that it, it's, it doesn't yet know who mm. God is. <laughs> We're yeah. always forever on a journey. Now, the, the sixth one that I added after I wrote the book is sex. Sexuality is not logical. It's, <laughs> you know, there's no nothing reasonable about this. Uh, and yet, you know, when you think people give their whole lives for love and sex and it, it's it's it, it does make the world go round in some ways. Yes, yeah. and so and yet, if we say we're logical, rational human beings, the great things, the six I've just mentioned, are not in that realm at all. I don't think. Yeah. But they somehow open you up to this. There you go. That's yeah. it. That's their quality and their possibility. They open you up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, if you follow this, like the apex, <clears throat> excuse me, the apex of in some ways, your message is getting towards this non-dualistic thinking, which you touched on a little bit earlier. And so these things are kind of pointing us in that direction. It's always, and that's, I think, the seventh one of your alternative orthodoxy, right? Uh, which one are you quoting? Uh, Non-dualistic oh, thinking oh, is... Uh, yes, is the best way to get there. Yeah, yeah So, um, like, but that's what we're trying to get. Yes. See, if we wouldn't teach people what to believe as much as teach them how to believe, not what to see as much as how to see, then the dogmas and doctrines of Christianity, which I accept the orthodox doctrines of the church. Uh, But most people mouth them. But if you really say, what does that mean? They falter. (laughs) They will repeat cliches that they were trained to. They don't know what that means because you can't talk about... well, like Jesus is fully human and fully divine. I love to talk about that. But rationally, those cancel one another out. That that can't be true, yeah. you know. And yet you and I believe that paradox mm-hmm. as Orthodox Christians, that Jesus is at the same time fully human and fully divine. My point would be that only a contemplative mind or a non-dual mind, that's a description of the same thing, is prepared to hold paradoxes, you know, that Jesus is human and divine. God is one and three. 
All of the great doctrines of the church require that. Are, are, require that. They're yeah. all paradoxical. Or, or as, as a Catholic Christian, I'm not sure about your tradition, but we believe Jesus is really giving himself to us in the bread and the wine at, at communion service. You know? mm-hmm. Now, this is bread. This isn't Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> but you and I have the courage. No, it's Jesus too. Yeah. Now, the logical mind gives up, calls us all superstitious and silly, <laughs> and throws out the baby with the bathwater. In fact, it's pretty good news. It's saying matter and spirit can coexist. Yeah, This is good stuff. That is. It's called the incarnation. So I was preparing uh, communion a couple weeks ago at our church. And I was in the back and I was taking the unleavened bread, which we use, and put it onto a tray out of a, a package in a box in a plastic crate. And I thought... This is so ordinary. Like this is literally a piece of food in plastic in a box in a you know plastic mm. Tupperware, and somehow we're going to say this is the body of the Christ. The body brother. of Christ. That will blow your mind. There you go. You have to have this non-dualistic, <clears throat> this contemplative mind to, to say that we're in the same place. Okay, Nine. when I'm talking to my fellow evangelical Protestants, non-dualistic thinking doesn't fit in our vernacular. No, and you don't have to use that word. What, what can no. I say? Where, like, is there a Bible verse I can say, hey, this is where we're going? See, uh, Jesus exemplifies it. Mm-hmm. He doesn't systematically teach it. Uh, he's exemplifying it constantly. His great one-liner of non-dual thinking is, I and the Father are one, in John 10, 10.30. I and... What, but what you do to your neighbor, you do to me. If you give a cup of cold water mm-hmm. to someone in my name, you've done it to me. That's rational. No, I'm giving it to him. No, he's overcome the split between the neighbor and himself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Whatever you do to the least of the brothers and sisters, that's non-dual thinking. Do you yeah. see? When he says maybe a one-liner that would be easy to remember is, uh, my father's son shines on the good and the bad. It rains on the just and the unjust. That's non-dual thinking. Mm-hmm. And if we had time, I could go through the parables. The, again and again, uh, he's talking this way, but you and I, frankly, if we'd be honest, a lot of times we don't know what he's talking about. We just, that's Jesus gobbledygook. He's way out. Yeah. The last or first and the first or last. Okay, I know I've got to read that because it's in the gospel, but I really don't agree with it and I really don't like it. Why? Because you really can't understand it with a dualistic mind. Yeah. It's, it's so universal in Jesus that we've learned to sort of glaze over <laughs> and not pay any attention to it. Yeah. Even though none of us would deny it's scripture, you see. Yeah. But we don't want to really live it out. No, it's no. in there, it's in the book, but it's not <laughs> in my life. Yeah. Okay, so I've got a friend who, he's definitely first half of life kind of guy. Yeah. We'll just call him Little Johnny. And Little Johnny listened to the last time we talked. And he got, um, he, he sent me a message. He said, you know, he's talking about this non-dualistic thinking, like, you know, everything's there, you know, everything's spiritual, you know, everything belongs. You know, I'd really like to go watch the movie Star Wars with him and see how he would see a movie that's clearly this is bad and clearly this is good. Like, how do you justify that together? Okay, I'm glad you're asking the question. Non-dual thinking is not the elimination of dualistic thinking. First, you have to succeed at clear-headed, dualistic, Mm -hmm. rational, black-and-white 
or I wouldn't respect you wouldn't respect me if I just talked in a real fuzzy amorphous meaningless meandering way you mm-hmm. wouldn't you first have to say okay he's got a head he's using it he's rational he's he's somewhat consistent I don't understand him all the time it's only people who can first of all take their rational mind as far as it can go mm-hmm. uh, where where I can recognize evil and good very clearly. In fact, I would say, when you move to the non-dual level, you can go back and see the nature of evil and the nature of good even with greater clarity. Hmm. <laughs> so it's not giving up there, uh, that everything's fuzzy, uh, you know, yeah. or, or accepting that everything is fuzzy. It's just the opposite of what people think. But now you look at it with a calm detachment. You can say, how can people make such mistakes? And you know, some of the racism in our country today, which seems to be showing its head again, it's just, I thought we had resolved that in the 1960s when I was your age. Yeah. And that we're right back into it. You just see that the, the nature of evil just continually recurs. And it's very clear to me that's evil. Very clear. Yeah. Uh, how, do you, how do you respond to that evil? Like if you saw, yeah. like mm. obviously racism or like ISIS, which is yeah, ISIS. just terrible stuff. Like how just atrocious. How do you yeah. see that in this non-dualistic thinking of a way to respond to that? Yeah, there's the question. In the practical order, how can I respond to hate without becoming hate myself? Oh yeah. Now it was only in the fifties. Do you know that we first created the in the English language a word to try to express that attitude, and it's still a somewhat strange word, nonviolence. Almost, we, <laughs> we don't know how to describe it positively. It's just we know it's not violent. You we know? Can't, there's not even a word for there's it. It's not, really just a yeah. yeah. Because the concept wasn't there of deep compassion or or everything belonging universal love which we attributed only to God but I would say that that's shared by godly people who have the mind of Christ that they really don't divide the world into good guys and bad guys anymore in the in the practical order of response now in the theoretical I'd say you know those ISIS guys who are beheading people and slaughtering children and killing their own people I can very clearly see that they're not nice people. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Now I can play the psychologist and say, no one can do that unless they themselves were abused as boys. Now, I admit that's just a psychological explanation. But it begins to give me sympathy, compassion. Not in allowing their atrocities, they have to be stood up to, but I'm not going to become an equally hateful person myself. Yeah. I have to maintain my freedom as a person of Christ, as a person of inner freedom, to name their evil as evil and ask God to keep me from becoming equally evil in my response. And so That's genius, spiritual genius. Yeah, yeah. To know course. how to do that. I, I don't, I, you don't know till the moment is upon you, yeah. I think. You, know, you can't resolve the question theoretically, fully. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, for example, when the Pope comes out and says there needs to be a response to ISIS, mm-hmm. you go, okay. I mean, we can yeah. we can respond without being hateful, but we still need to use your language to stand up to them. 
Yeah, and that's, you notice even Pope Francis, as much of a spiritual genius as he appears to be, he didn't go to the second level, the practical level, and say, okay, how do we stand up to them? How do we resist their evil? Uh, I, I think governments have gone a long way. You know, this whole thing that we call, you know, economic deterrence and, and various limits we put on governments, that's largely a phenomenon of the last 30 years. That never entered people's minds in previous centuries, that there are steps we can take previous to going in with full-scale battle gear, do you understand? Mm-hmm. and at least we're moving in that direction. Now, you and I both know it doesn't appear to be working in a lot of situations. Mm-hmm. So I think we need a new level of genius, of spiritual insight. How do we step up you know, the opposition, the, the protection of innocent people? Because I think it is also virtuous and holy to lay down your life for your friends who are being slaughtered. Yeah. Hmm. So do you see how it's all subtle? Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I would believe in nonviolence, yet I cannot call myself a 100% pacifist, that I would believe if I saw someone being killed, I would, as a Christian, have to be free to give my life to try to keep that person's yeah, life. Exactly. I hope that wouldn't mean I'd have to shoot another person, but it might. Hmm. Yeah, it yeah. might. But it requires you to, to view people differently. That's right. And That's the de- point. And you deal with the problem differently. You've used the language of, we don't need to scapegoat anyone. Yeah, there you and, go. And you've, you've pinpointed that the issue isn't the shadow self, but it is the, the separate self. Can you explain kind of what those two differentiations are and, okay. and, and how to do that? You know, uh, it was Freud, I'm afraid. I'm not trying to sound like a psychologist, but in the last century... Hey, that's my childhood. My dad called uh, oh, Freud that's me all right. the time. He would understand. Yeah. Uh, he used the Latin word for I, ego, mm-hmm. to describe the separate self. So it's become pretty much a part of the English language now. Yeah. Your ego self is your autonomous, self-sufficient me that wants to... Uh, define myself in opposition to you, that I'm better looking, I'm uh, smarter, I'm holier, whatever you're... I agree with all three of those. (laughs) All three of them I completely agree. (laughs) Whatever the criteria might be. But that's what the ego loves to do, define itself uh, competitively Mm -hmm. and defensively. It's very defensive. The ego self, the autonomous self, the thing it hates more than anything else is change. It doesn't like to change. You see this in almost all human beings. You know, as soon as you ask change of them, resistance goes up. Mm-hmm. It's it's a victim of homeostasis. Protect the ground I've got. Don't give in on anything. So that's why the ego self is not very open to conversion. When Jesus says, you know, leave everything and follow me, the ego doesn't know what that's talking about. It it isn't even in the conversation. Now. Let's uh, put that in contradistinction to the shadow self. Mm -hmm. Jesus, again, shows himself to be a brilliant psychologist. Maybe uh, in this regard, especially when he says, why do you see the splinter in your brother or sister's eye and refuse to see the log in your own? Now notice he uses very disproportionate images, you know, 
that you got the problem in a major way and you see it in a, and hate it in a minor way, a splinter in somebody else. The longer you live, Luke, you're going to see, and it's very embarrassing, that the people who really tick you off, who you really feel a need to, to fight or oppose, are invariably just like you in some way. Oh, that's not good. I know. None of us want no. to hear that. They're playing your same game, whatever your game is, and they're succeeding at it, dang it. And they're beating me And, and I can see right through it because I've played that game of success, power, money, whatever. Right, so all those terrible things I say about those people in my head, I really should be saying about myself? Invariably. (sighs) Invariably. I don't like that. You hate your own faults in other people. This will become more apparent to you the older you get. I'm I'm sorry to say. That's not good news. It (laughs) takes such humility to admit that it's true. But uh, this is my attempt, and I think Jesus' attempt, to describe the shadow self. So the shadow self is not really the evil part of you, but it's the part of you that doesn't want to see the evil mm-hmm. part of you. Can, can you make that distinction? And if you notice, and this is shocking to a lot of Christians, but Jesus is not upset at sinners. He really isn't. Today's gospel in our lectionary, for example, is the famous story from John 8 of the woman caught in adultery, you mm-hmm. know? Jesus is not upset at sinners. He's only upset at people who don't think they are sinners. Check it out. Wow. It's pretty clear. Yeah, you know? that's, yeah, that's... It's pretty clear. You say, how come I never saw this? You can't see what you're not told to pay attention to. And so that's what we're calling our shadow self. This that's right. part that I don't want to deal with. I, I don't want... I don't want to see myself that I'm a greedy person or whatever my yeah. thing is. So how do we do, like, what is the mechanism going on inside of me that's creating a shadow over this ugly part of me? I think it's the defensiveness of the ego that I talked about earlier. Yeah. See, Now, what we've done in Christianity, by and large, in all of our denominations, because it's low-level religion, it doesn't really matter what denomination you are, we've concentrated on shadow issues. Maybe in your tradition it was drinking. You know, in our uh, church it was sex. Uh, um, we, don't, we don't let either of those happen in my denomination. <laughs> They're just bad things. Which Now, I admit that both of those can lead people to do some very evil, wrong things. Mm-hmm. But of themselves, in themselves, they're not evil. Do you understand? Yeah. So we deal with the symptoms. You know, drunkenness is bad, so we're going to say alcohol is bad. Well, alcohol used in moderation, it's obvious Jesus drank wine. It's obvious, you know. Yeah. Wait, I was told as a kid it was non-alcoholic grape juice that Jesus made. There's no basis for that. But okay, yeah, of course. Wine is wine is wine. Exactly. And at the end of a party when people are clearly inebriated, Jesus is making better wine. And obviously that's in there, you know, that's in there. Okay. But the issue is not like I'm abusing alcohol, but what is making me need to cover up the mask? And that's your woundedness. That's the source of your, your mistakes that you make. Do you know, I, in some Aramaic Hebrew studies recently, this was pointed out to me. I'm sure you've heard it before. The word that is translated sin in the Bible, literally in its oldest iterations, was from the world of archery. Mm -hmm. And it was the word for not hitting the target. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. 
to, sin was to not hit the target. Now, we took that a long ways from not hitting the target to make it something that an action that made God not like you, you understand? Yeah. Or made you inherently a bad person. We all miss the target all the time. But what the word implies, therefore, is that there is a target. There is an ideal. We don't want to give up the ideal. A man should be faithful to his wife in marriage. There's no doubt about that. That's the ideal. Now, this certain man, woman, by some terrible circumstance, is not faithful to that. It's very unfortunate it happened. It's not going to be good all the way around. But the only question Jesus would ask is, okay, now how can we use this, even this, to bring this person closer to God? But but the shadow self wouldn't want to ask that question. That's right. It would just say, no, it didn't happen. That's right. Denial. Denial. Instead yeah. of dealing with that actual issue. That's right. And that's where change happens. You know, it largely has to do with shame. Oh, yeah. Ego issues are always issues that make us feel ashamed of ourselves. So it's very e- easy to shame people around shadowy issues. Sex being a big one, any kind of body failure, like drunkenness would be another, will invariably choose issues, what we call them purity codes in the Hebrew scriptures, mm-hmm. that have to do with physicality, touching things that were made you unclean or unworthy. It's always physical. Whereas if you look at Jesus, the genius of Jesus again, he always emphasizes what I'm going to call sins of the spirit, not big S spirit, little s. Uh, Pride, uh, arrogance, violence, sins of the mind and the heart, Mm -hmm. ambition, greed. These are the sins that destroy the heart. He, He lists them in one case. Now, he wouldn't deny there's such a thing as lust and gluttony, uh, but those are by and large sins of weakness. They're not sins of malice. Hmm. And sins of malice would be ambition, pride, arrogance, where, where I really take power over another person and try to defeat them or humiliate them. Those are the sins that Jesus is much more concerned about. So the sins of weakness, as I'm trying to process this, yeah. okay, you, you can't control the shame you have, and so you're going to drink. Or you can't control your impulses, and so yeah. you're going to act inappropriately sexually. Yes. I'm too weak to control those things. But the, the sins, the other ones you're talking about, those are things inside of you that you're fueling that are, that are causing you to act mm. in terrible ways. You don't do them out of weakness. You do them actually out of a sense of false power. I can dominate this person. Do you understand? It's, yeah. it's not a lack of will. It's intense will. Mm-hmm. Willfulness. And that's, is that um, not missing the mark? But that's... Yes. Yeah. They're all missing the mark. I don't mm-hmm. want to say there isn't such a thing as sins of drunkenness or, yeah, yeah, or, yeah. or sexuality. But uh, I just look at the overall moral concerns in the four Gospels and in Paul. And they're much more the sins of weakness. Yeah. That's what closes down the heart. A sin, uh, 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 or did I say it backward? His concern is sins of malice. Yeah. Yeah. The, and those close down the heart. Sins of weakness, ironically, paradoxically, can and very often do open up the heart. How's that? 
Well, you see this if you've ever had any connection with 12-step programs. You know, people who've been humiliated by addiction, very often in, I've been a priest 45 years now, are some of the most humble and honest people I've ever worked with. Mm -hmm. You know, even though they admit they've wasted 20 years on this addiction or that addiction. But it humiliates them and makes them much more humble. Yeah. And, and so that's why God uses sin to bring us to himself. But he can use the sins of weakness. Yeah. The sins of malice tend to put a, a guard around the heart. And people at, at that level are very hard to change, really. Yeah. Philip Yancey, a friend of the show, who's, who wrote a piece, I think, titled, Why I Wish I Was an Alcoholic. Really, and he talks about he's a brilliant teacher. Yeah, very brilliant. And he talks about a friend who um, his drink of choice was Jack Daniels, and he can't get up in the morning without wanting some some Jack Daniels just to get through. But he says that reminds him of his need for God, and he's learned like this is Philip Yancey's friend talking, and Philip Yancey's friend has learned to realize this this longing that I have for for drink Mm. is really pointing me to my longing that I have for God. You know, I'm going to build on that, Luke. Uh, And I'm not saying this because it sounds good. But I was jail chaplain here in Albuquerque for 14 years. And I lived right next door to a house in downtown where the alcoholics would have their meetings. And I became convinced after spiritually directing an awful lot of, of people in addiction that actually, strange as it sounds, many addicts, have a a higher spiritual sense than the rest of us. Mm. (laughs) And I almost wonder if it wasn't that frustrated spiritual sense that that they couldn't find God, they couldn't find a church that was loving or, or a gospel that made sense to them, that that's in part what drove them toward drink. I found that again and again, that some of my addict friends had a higher spiritual sensitivity than the typical Catholic that I met in church on Sunday morning. Really? And I have to admit that's true in my limited experience where they were curious and interested in spiritual things. We were very often Sunday go to meeting Catholics. I'll just pick on my own group. Uh, have almost no spiritual curiosity whatsoever. Mm-hmm. They just they just believe a bunch of things. Do you understand? Yeah, definitely. But there's no passion, there's no uh, devotion, there's no excitement, there's no caring for the poor, uh, there's no caring for the little guy. It's just, I go to church on Sunday. Yeah. And uh, I just see that caring in an awful lot of people who've suffered from addiction. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I don't know where I get this quote from, and so I'm just going to say you wrote it. Deal? Yeah. I don't know who this quote's from, so I'm just going to say. Someone said that every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is really looking for God. Oh, wow. You know, Gerald May might have said that. He wrote a book called Addiction and Grace. Hmm. But, uh, yeah, and in that book he makes the case very seriously that uh, what drives us toward addiction is, is an a frustration with spiritual desire that I, I really want total union with the divine, but I don't know how to get that. So I'm just going to get naked with a woman and that's the closest I can, yep. you know, and 
you know, they're a little bit right. Do you understand? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're a little. This might open up the heart. In the, it might, yeah. if he doesn't just use this woman. If he really would be capable of a tender eye thou relationship, it might be the one thing that could open his heart. Hmm. You know. Yeah. Interesting. Not encouraging, you know. Okay, let's clarify. <laughs> but but I've seen it happen. You know, yeah. it's a surprise of surprises. Okay, yeah. I want to change gears here. Okay. So I finally picked up a copy of your book on the Enneagram. Oh. Not too long, and I feel like I say the word wrong every time. No, I no, say you it. said it right. Enneagram, and I don't know a whole lot. So I've read your book. Did you? And so that's like the only thing I know about the Enneagram. I've heard people talk about it in kind of my circles. I'm shamed that I don't really know the Enneagram because it's kind of like a code of honor. Like, so what number are you? Really? Yeah. Even, oh. No, it's not that bad. I'm being facetious no. to some degree. But so I'm, I'm wondering, as someone who's been using Enneagram for, for decades, right? 73, I learned it. Yeah. 1973. You weren't born yet. I, uh, <laughs> almost. Just a decade away. Um, no, so, I, so you've been doing it longer than I've been alive. Yeah. I've got a friend who is a chiropractor, and he says that he can watch people walk and say, I know what's wrong with your spine and your shoulders tight and your hamstrings tight, or you know your ankles don't have good flexion or something. And he can just look at people and pinpoint, okay, this is what you are. Do you do the same thing with the Enneagram? Like you can just see someone talking and go, ah, you're number two, you're number seven. If I'm with them a half an hour, I almost always know. How long have we been talking now? <laughs> oh, no. I'm not certain of you, but I guess... And see, originally what it was was precisely that. Training you as a spiritual director. That's what it served as for maybe as much as a thousand years. To train the spiritual eye of a spiritual director. So you could focus in on what the person really needed to pay attention to. And that became the Christian capital sins. Now, uh, we had seven capital sins. Did we just add two to that? That's it. There were two that we missed. The anagram ania in Greek means nine. Mm -hmm. So it's the nine words or the nine types, the nine passions, if you will. Passion doesn't mean blindness is the way they use the word. It's uh, the only people who don't think the Enneagram is true are people who don't know it. Once you know it, it's so obviously true. Why it's true, I can't prove it, and I've known it. I gave the keynote address last summer for the 40th anniversary of the entrance of the Enneagram into America. <clears throat> and um, it all I mean, a, a room filled with people who believe in it, and we all know it's true, but we don't know why. And it's, I mean, it's crazy yeah, to think that yeah. there, are, there are nine types, yeah, and there yeah. are billions of people, People, but there's only nine types. Yeah. That kind of blows my mind. Well, well, remember this. There's a thousand ways to be each, uh, to be a six. With the wings, be, right? We use just numbers, yeah. I mean, once you've typed, you're like, I'm a one, the first type. Okay, you know what to pay attention to in the direction in which your fault lies. And it's overwhelmingly obvious, mm -hmm. if you're honest. Uh, but I know ones who are yeah. very different than me. And yet I can still see the underlying game is the same. It's the same game. It's the same. Like in my case, it's a search for perfection. That's why we often make good teachers, why I can talk here with some ease. We're looking for the perfect word to communicate our perfect idea. Mm -hmm. And it makes us very clear teachers. 
ones uh, very often are teachers. It's amazing. Really? Yeah. But we can also, now the dark side of that, I'll just use, is we can be school marms in the negative connotation of that term. Sort of moralistic and finger shaking and on time, little boy scouts. I was a little boy scout. Were you? On time, reverent, respectful, yes sir, no sir. Got through the seminary with no trouble. That's the way ones are. We're yeah. little adults. I was an adult <laughs> at a 10-year-old boy. I was a 10-year-old boy. I told you before we started recording about my daughter, my six-year-old daughter. Yes. I told her, hey, I'm, I'm going to go to the beach in a couple of day, couple of weeks. You want to come with me? And she says, yes. I said, well, you have to skip school. And she goes, I can't skip school. Yeah. That's, that sounds That's like a one. a one response. She's yeah. an oldest no, child. I, I, oh, my gosh. Yeah. Is she very responsible? She's more responsible than I am. I bet she's a one. She That's wa- my energy. She wakes me up to get her to school. <laughs> she wakes me up. She's six. Yeah. Isn't yeah. that amazing? So she's a one. Now, I don't want to say for certain. Okay, but... I, but if she were here after you given me that much, I'd know within five minutes. Yeah. 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 And a home... And again, you don't want to type her, tell her you're a one. You're just her daddy. But this is going to help you understand her because... Especially when she gets a little older, she's going to start being very hard on herself. Hmm. That, yes. you know, and you're going to have to never uh, accentuate those voices in her because she'll overdo it. You don't need to be moralistic with her at all because she's going to be way too moralistic with herself. On her own. Yeah. And so that's part of how the tool is used. It's that's like, right. I love what you're doing for, for parents because I can see my oldest daughter's one way. My second daughter, she's three. She's not like that. She would skip Already school every did. day. Like she wouldn't go to her mother's <laughs> day out because she wants to stay at home in her pajamas. But they're different. And so it would be easy for me as a parent to think, well, this worked for oldest child, so mm. let me do the same thing to the Excellent. middle child. Excellent. But Good instead, this helps me ask different questions. <clears throat> yeah. My wife and I ask different questions. You know, let me add on to that. You're, you're right down the, the right alley. <clears throat> it, people think the anagram is going to make you put people in boxes. It exactly has the opposite effect. By knowing already, these are completely two different energies, my first two daughters. I'm going to treat them very differently, you know? Your second probably will need a little discipline. (laughs) A little little boundary pudding here. Yes. Whereas your first daughter is never... She's going to create boundaries for herself that are probably too strict. That, yes, that, yes, that makes yes. perfect sense. That's what I was as a little boy. I was on time for everything. My parents never worried about me. They, I, I walked the other little kids in the neighborhood home from school because mm. all the neighbor mothers knew that little Dickie Roar could be relied, <laughs> relied upon in all situations, and I could be. Yeah. But by the second half of life, that which served me well as a boy started rotting. Did I say that in the book? It's like, Richard, you're too much of a Boy Scout. It, you're starting to become stern and, and overly moral and overly right. Mm-hmm. The most common phrase that a one uses, watch this in your daughter, is that's not right. That's not right. Yes. We, we just, does she already use it? We see when things aren't right. We know what the rules are. Most religious reformers, Luther, Calvin, Knox, Roar, Roar, <laughs> they're all ones. Yeah. Because we're moral people and we see when religion isn't 
be living up to its own criteria. Yeah. Now you did say, speaking of being on the right path, you said that N.T. Wright is a seven. Yes. And you guessed that no, I was... The only reason, because he told me that. I'm not outing him. <laughs> but at this little conference we were at together years ago, I noticed how fun-loving he was. And, of course, I respected him as such a scholar. Yeah. And he already knew the Enneagram. This was 12, 15 years ago. He said, oh, I'm a seven. Can't you tell? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I think I can tell. And... Go ahead with what well, you I, I really just wanted to be it to be recorded where you said I was like N.T. Wright. That's really what I was looking oh, for. <laughs> Not the seven part. You have the sparkling eyes of a seven. Your smile is very natural and you're fun-loving. Now, I could be wrong, but I would say I'm 80%. A seven, huh? Thinking you're a seven, okay, well, but and, I'm willing to be unconvinced. Well, well I, I don't know. Oh, I, you don't know. I, okay. Well, I read your book, and your suggestion in the book was not to go through a, a questionnaire, which no. you find all over the internet. You said just to read them all and see which fits you. Well, the best thing is to be with a, a mentor or spiritual director who knows it, and they can usually affirm it for you within a half an hour. Yeah. But only in dialogue with you. And you've got to come to the conclusion. Yeah. Like I did the wrong thing by saying you're probably a seven. Well I because you might not be. You well, might not be I've I felt at home as a three. Alright. There's that was my second choice. Well uh I, I read some of that and I thought yeah, but I don't want to admit that because, like, oh, you... was that more humiliating? Well, it wasn't humiliating. I thought, okay, this makes sense. But then, like, you're describing, you're like, well, they're very shallow, and they just kind of <laughs> not shallow. They act and they they do whatever they can to impress people. I'm like, oh, this is a terrible <laughs> number to be. Oh gosh, I mean, you might be. Is one of your parents real positive or? Yeah, my my dad's a very optimistic person. Oh, that's the seven I'm seeing in you. I'm seeing yeah. your dad in you. Because right behind the seven was the three. The way you arranged this meeting, that you would travel here, you asked nothing of us, you rented the car, you came here, you got the flight, you set up. That's all immense three behavior. What do you mean by that? Threes grease the wheels of everything to make it more efficient and more effective. Hmm. And they do it almost effortlessly like you did this meeting. Like I said, can't we just talk on the phone? You didn't, they don't mind expanding energy. Like you wasted a whole day. <laughs> it's not wasted. Coming here. But it's better. Yeah, like this is see, better yeah, to do it this If way. it's better, you will put yourself out for it. Yeah. So I'm willing to say you might well be a three. You're also, please don't be embarrassed by this, but you're a good looking man. <laughs> and I would like to know myself, what is this that most threes I've ever met are good looking? It's almost as if, as a little boy, I'm sure you were a cute little boy, you cute little kids, I'm sorry to say, get more response from yeah. adults. And people look at them, smile at them, reach out to them. And they seem to develop self-confidence much mm -hmm. earlier, which is three. But it also shapes... <clears throat> their there's no way I can say this next thing without sounding like a terrible person. You're, okay, right. so this is awful. Like I really, no, I'm going to edit that this isn't. out, but it, it goes as a conversation. So when I was just transferred to college, there was like some rumor that I was a model for Abercrombie and Fitch and there was a phone call or two or something. And so like I go to a college of 4,000 people, a new guy comes in there. They say this about him, this you know popular clothing company. Oh, this is, you know, he, yes. and it, 
it creates a dynamic where people expect something and you're expected yeah. to be something yeah. and you get used to that. And you, you get, ex- that's what I'm saying. You just said it. It, it changes the, the relationships you have. And there, yeah, it's called lookism. And I hate that I just said that story. Please no, forgive me. No, Can you absolve might, me? You're probably helping a whole bunch of threes out there. Because most threes suffer from this, that they realize ever since their childhood, they've gotten more than they deserved response. And this has given them an excess of self-confidence. Now, just as a spiritual director, I'm going to say, God is using that, all right? Hmm. So I got my thing and my fix in another direction that I was responsible, dutiful, and... But that's a good thing. Like, this is just shallow, like, oh, wow. Well, no, really, it can be. A lot of threes, I mean, Hollywood is filled with threes, Mm good-looking young men and beautiful women who just try to live on that level all their life. Can you imagine why they become drug addicts and alcoholics when they're not so beautiful anymore? Or when you're not young. Or when you're not young. It all depends on youth. It's gone, and and you don't have that anymore. There you go. So I hope I said in the book, I can't remember, it's been so many years, but you know, if deceit is the worst fault of a three, love of truth getting beyond the bullshit is the great gift of the three. Mm-hmm. Just, I want to have integrity. I want to do this with truth. And I have some very dear three friends. And that's what characterizes them. They just, they like integrity. They like truthfulness. And they see through phoniness yeah. because they played that game or they're tempted to play that game. Do you yeah. see? So every time your sin is your gift, your gift is your sin. You can't have one without the other. There are two sides literally of the same coin. Yeah. I can see why you're fascinated by it because the Enneagram teaches you non-dual thinking. Because it's, well, it's not just good, it's not just bad. It's, it's, there you go, there you go. Like, righteousness is my worst fault, but a love of justice and honesty is my greatest gift. Yeah, know? that's a beautiful and thing. And here, so you could be in your worst just living the fashion model game. <laughs> but at, oh, <laughs> at, oh, your, so at, your, yeah, at your truth, though, you don't need that, and you don't want that, and you don't want people to love you. The fear inside of a good-looking person very often is, would people love me if I were not? And very often they'll, they'll try not to play on that to see if people love them apart from their appearance. Women, I think, good-looking women have to suffer from yeah, that's this be immensely. Because they realize man after man wants them just for their body or their face. Yeah. Uh. I'm in deep regret that I even brought this up. No, I'm glad you did. You you were vulnerable about a little bit of yourself, and that's going to help other people be vulnerable too. Okay. I wouldn't delete it. Well, no one better tweet me about that. Okay, (laughs) I will will block you. Okay, there's a movie out um, recently called Birdman, which was a very popular movie. It did really well. And it's about an actor. And so I just read the Enneagram stuff about being a number three, being an actor. And so I watched this movie about this insecure actor who is struggling to find identity and worth and his ex-wife says this line to him that stuck me she said to the actor who's trying to figure out who he is and he's going to eventually well i'm not going to ruin the movie but he's struggling and she says to him you've always confused adoration for love oh wow and i thought oh that's a three Mm -hmm. right 
It could be a three. It could be an easy response for a three. Yeah. Now, are you speaking of it from which side? Wanting yeah, to be adored? Yeah, you want adoration and you mm-hmm. think that's that's what you want when really you're mm-hmm. wanting love and Very you mistake good. what real love is and you just are satisfied with adoration. That's excellent. There's, excellent. Yes. There's a lot of... Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I have a handful of friends who are pastors who are also threes. And there seems to be something about being a pastor that at a young age when you're like a preacher boy, everyone loves a preacher boy because it's cute and it's nice. Oh, this is a, a, a young sure. man who's doing the right thing. And so everyone tells you how wonderful you yes, are. Yes, and yes. that can lure you into the ministry no. because everyone loves to, for people to tell them how great they are. Yeah. Do you know there was a study of narcissistic occupations? You probably know Uh-oh. what I'm going to say. And the number one occupation that attracted the most narcissistic personalities was the clergy. Really? For the very reasons you said. When you're up in front of a crowd, Sunday after Sunday, we dress up even in vestments. I'm so jealous of that. And and people are, you know, uh, looking upon us as godly men. You've got to know that is a huge inflation to the ego. And if you don't have some, this is why so many priests and ministers get in sexual problems, you know, because it's constantly, you said it well, being adored almost just highly inflates the ego. What is the connection to sex then? Well, this need to be adored morphs over into sexuality. You know, this woman who I see is sitting in the front pew just worshiping my every word. Hmm. Uh, I, I, I want to build on that. Yeah. And I'm going to groom that and lead it further to get my own needs met. I'm not saying this is true anywhere, the majority of clergy, but it happens enough to know that we got a problem, that there's a danger in speaking for God. When you speak for God... Uh, this does terrible things to the youthful male soul mm-hmm. that makes him think he's far more along the path than very often he really is. So what do you encourage that person to do to fight against that? You know, I think I didn't I say this on Oprah? I'll repeat it for you. <laughs> when she was asking me, I said the main thing you got to take advantage of is notice how you respond to offenses and people who don't like you. If you need to overly assert, I was right, you're wrong, you're wrong to think ill of me, uh, you're still probably trapped in the ego self. So we need, I really mean this, we need to be offended at least once a day. We need not to get our own way at least once a day. Now this is where it's good to be a married man. No, it is. It is. I, it is because your wife is going to make sure of that, and your children are going to make sure of that. Yes, but, very much so. This, my position is much more dangerous. I don't have a wife. I don't have children. I don't have those truth speakers yeah. that keep my feet on the ground like you do. But if you don't, if you keep yourself superior to your wife, mm-hmm. and she never can speak truth to you. Honey, you aren't very loving today. You know, as I'm sure a wife says sometimes to a husband. Uh, I've heard that from other people. (laughs) (laughs) You've got to watch your response. Is it overly defensive? That reveals to you how much you're attached to your egoic self. 
Hmm. So to, you to your narcissism. So you you learn to be at peace with people critiquing you yeah. and not having to defend yourself. Mm-hmm. And you know that's several that's times. not easy. No, it isn't. It isn't easy. You know, and you and I, for probably different reasons, are used to being adored. We, and when you, when that becomes daily, anybody who doesn't adore me, I'm just well. <laughs> what's wrong with you yeah. they, that you don't know? So we especially need it. I'm afraid. Yeah. Uh, but you, the very fact, Luke, that you could ask the question so honestly. You'll be okay. I'm not worried about you. It's the guys who would never think of asking that question. Hmm. They're so convinced that they deserve all this adulation and all this praise. Those are the ones you're worried about. Yeah, like you're saying about being married. Uh, I, I've been married for 12 years now. 12 years. And huh? there's no way I can be married that long and really think I'm half as good as people think I am. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I really, eh, Luke, you've got some stuff to work on, you know? Mm-hmm. See? So. Marriage is the safest vocation by far because you provide a mirror for one another. Hmm. That even though you love one another, you clearly show one another that you're not perfect yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very, very much so. Very <laughs> yeah, much so. Yeah, yeah. Well, how do you, how does a married a marriage work where you are allowed to see your imperfections and the other person who has that rare window into who you actually are and actually grow from that instead of being defensive and trying to and fight def- because yeah. because if you're used to people telling you how great you are, you have a spouse who says, no, Honey, you're, not all you, the time. <laughs> you're not that cool. You're not that good. That can be really challenging because everyone mm-hmm. else says the exact opposite yeah. about you. That's why a lot of people in high positions, their marriages don't last. Because they get so used to the outer persona being praised and come home and being told you're not that good. All you have to do is thank your wife for it. Um, When it's honest and true, that doesn't mean you have to roll over and say she's 100% always right. If Mm -hmm. there's something, honey, I don't think you understood why I did that. You have a right to say that too. But in general, she is the best mirror you'll ever have. And your children, of course, love you because you're daddy, not because you're a speaker or a minister. And that's what's real good. Yeah. That all of that public stuff means very little to them. In fact, it gets in the way. They will resent it sometimes because yeah. yeah. it keeps you from them. And they just want you. Hmm. That's the wonderful thing about children's love. It's they just want the relationship itself. Uh, I don't know if I answered your question. Huh? How recognize when the truth is being given and find the grace and the freedom to thank the person for it mm. insofar as it's true. Yeah. This is what really, on the foundational level, Jesus means by telling us to love our enemies. That's a real strange one when you think about it. When you talk about marriage yeah. especially. <laughs> love your, yeah, because at that yeah. moment... She is your enemy. Do you understand? Not a cosmic. Well, because enemy. she's the one who's, clo- or he is the one there who's inside of you, in your heart, in your rare, vulnerable yeah. space, and no one else can get there. No one else can get there like she can. Yeah. You know? And and when she sees it, dang it, you know it's probably true. And I hate when she's right too. <laughs> when you're mad and you're like, oh, you're you're right, and I have nothing to say back. That's beautiful. Terrible. Beautiful. Okay, let's change gears. All right. Let's talk about religion for a second. All right. Well, first of all, you have an ability to kind of float in and out of Protestant world because us Protestants, we like you. Us Protestant evangelicals, we like you. Obviously, Catholic world, 
Everyone loves you there, of course. No, right? no, no. The right-wing Catholics well, hate me. Hate me. Well, but go ahead. Okay. Yeah. So you can kind of flow back and forth. And I've got this pet peeve. When people talk about religion, and I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but kind of in my world, sometimes people say, you know, I don't have religion. I've got a relationship. Oh, yeah. And I, I usually hear the people saying that they're on a stage in a building that doesn't have to pay property tax because it's deemed a religious building. And this person has their paycheck paid by people who give 501c3 nonprofit gifts that are not also tax deductible. And he probably has a nice charitable uh, um, housing allowance that he is able to write off also on his taxes because guess what? He's a religious leader. And so we, we like to say we're not a part of a religion because no. of the bad side of it. Yeah. But we all are in the, the better sense of religion being like rejoining things, right? Isn't that the, the root of religion? Religion, re reconnect. Yeah, well, yeah. Like that's the best yeah. of what it can be. And obviously there are ways that it gets bad. And I think you even said yourself that religion produces the best of people and the worst of people. And so that's why people want to say, I've got a relationship, mm -hmm. not religion, because they see the, the worst of people being produced. Yeah. What do you think separates the good religion that creates the best of people and the bad religion that creates the worst of people? Well, first of all, this is a, a new language. It's been around pretty strongly for almost 20, 30 years now, most of your life. Because we saw, we started seeing the downside of organized religion. Now, in itself, that's good. That's moving yeah. into the deconstruction, necessary deconstruction stage. But what you're pointing out, if I'm hearing you correctly, is there's also some naivete in it. When you're still enjoying the benefits of what organized religion has given you, educated you in, the support system, like this building I'm in. I have a staff here of yeah. 17 people. You it's know? a wonderful facility. Yeah, and it's, uh, they're all making my voice possible that it gets out. And uh, they do all the work and I get all the praise. It doesn't seem fair at all in the but, least. So you could say on a very small scale here in Albuquerque, New Mexico, this little uh, adobe building is religion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, I can walk out and look like the superhero and talk about the relationship. And that, that should be the centerpiece, I admit. But there's some intellectual and emotional dishonesty. When we refuse to admit what I, I'm going to use religious language, the incarnate embodied part of the relationship. Hmm. That, so let's unpack that. The, the incarnation is our Christian word for the enfleshment of God in Christ. That, that spirit needs embodiment. Spirit needs enfleshment. The eternal Christ needed a body and it became Jesus. Mm -hmm. That would be my belief. And I think it's the same thing for uh, enduring gospel. L let me bring it home here again. I'm 72 now. i got to be realistic. I don't have that many years left. I don't know what they are. But we talk at board meetings. What would happen to this place if Richard would be hit by a car and die tomorrow? You know, um, Would it last without... So, you can make a message depend on charismatic personalities, mm -hmm. and then it dies when that personality dies. Or the only other way you can sustain a message is to organize it in such a way that a group carries and sustains the message after the death 
of the charismatic leader. Mm -hmm. Very many groups don't succeed three to five years after the death of the leader. So what I'm saying, what I'm building up to is institutionalization, in my opinion, embodiment, incarnation, is to some degree necessary for the sustaining, the continuity, the ongoing truth and authority of any message. Hmm. Otherwise, you simply have to wait for another charismatic personality to come along. I remember visiting ashrams in India, where literally, when the guru dies, they're empty. There's, there's The windows are all open, the doors are all open, and they, there would be one uh, guardsman taking charge of the place, and he say, we're waiting for another guru to appear. Really? Now, that's the Eastern approach, which doesn't idealize institution the way we do. Yeah. We want authority and continuity and sustainability. Mm-hmm. So we put all our eggs in the institutional basket. And, now you know this as a minister, sometimes we don't have any charismatic personalities who really have the ability to communicate the message anymore. That's particularly true in the Catholic Church, where you can be a completely boring preacher and be a priest, you know, but you just do the priest thing. So here's what I want to end with, is the ideal is when you, and you see it in some of the letters of Paul, where you can have the balance between organization and charismatic authority. Mm-hmm. It's, it seldom achieves a perfect balance where you can honor the, uh, the person with the special gift, but not base everything around them. Mm-hmm. If it is the true gospel, it should be sustainable by documents and practices and rituals, uh, which become the Methodist church or the Lutheran church or whatever it might be. But then... Within a generation, it needs reform again. You know, Thomas Jefferson said that the American uh, Revolution, if it would be sustained, would need to be repeated every 25 years. Really? Yeah, he's seldom quoted on that. And what you pretty soon have is, no offense, is the daughters of the American Revolution who are anything but revolutionary. Do you understand? But they're holding to the... But yeah, they're holding to the initial revolution not the idea. 200 years yeah. ago. But they're, I think, I actually don't know any daughters of the American Revolution, but they tend to be, I think, highly uh, conservative people who want to sustain the status quo. They're not interested in any kind of revolution, even though it all started... With idealizing a revolution. Yeah, that's interesting. This is the pattern everywhere. This is the pattern. That's a struggle because you get an organization, you have a church, and they always kind of regress towards maintaining status quo. Status quo. All spirituality, it's about letting go, getting rid of stuff. Organizations kind of shift and and focus towards, naturally gravitate towards maintenance. Self-maintenance. You've talked about how we need to uh, program for change and growth. Yeah. So that that doesn't happen. What do you think that looks like as you're, if you're someone who's leading a church? Well, let me say it's not easy to do. Because institutions, as institutions, tend to not be capable of high-level altruism. 
They're concerned with self-maintenance, self-congratulation, self-perpetuation, mm-hmm. self-validation. That's the definition of an institution. So you see why a, a person like we have Pope Francis now, who, who's the ultimate establishment figure, yeah. operating in an ultimately non-establishment way. It's blowing the mind of the whole world. Because I, I don't know, in Catholic history, I don't know if we've ever had this before, that someone can speak altruistically at the top. Because normally when you're the head of something, you've got to maintain it. You've got to be what we call a company man. You've got to be, or you won't be reelected. Well, fortunately the Pope isn't elected, <laughs> so he, he knows he can say exactly what he wants to say. That's got to be nice. But few of us have that freedom. Yeah. Few of us have that freedom. So this is the conflict between what's good about institutions, what's very limited about their possibilities. And I say this, actually, so I can, and you can, be less angry and judgmental at the limited ability institutions have to initiate true change. What they can do is they can write documents that are high-minded. They can raise up individuals, like I've been protected by the Franciscans, all my 45 years hmm. from bishops wanting to close me down and shut me up. And the Franciscans always step in and say, no, he's preaching the gospel. Really? Now, oh, yeah. If I wouldn't have had their protection, I would have been stopped 30 years ago easily. You know. Now, most people don't have that level of protection. And so what do they got to do? Be a company man. Speak the party line. Even when in their heart of hearts, they know it isn't the gospel. You understand? Oh. Oh. Like, I want to love this this gay couple. I know they love Jesus. I know they're committed to the God. But I can't. I just can't. I'll lose my job. Do you understand? Because or, they don't have yeah, people. Yeah. Who are, yeah, I think about mm. that kind of in, in the polity that I'm used to where if the elders aren't behind you, you might feel called to do something. You might feel like this is the direction the church needs to go. But if you don't have the eldership That's support, right. it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And so you have no. that in the Franciscans. I have that, yeah. See, that's the way the Catholic Church survived. I know you picture us, rightly so, as a big pyramid, Pope, Cardinals, Archbishops, Bishops, Priests, Deacons. And that's true, but it's only half the truth. You've heard, well, you just mentioned Franciscans. Picture around the pyramid a whole bunch of satellite groups, Carmelites, Dominicans, Sisters of Mercy, Sisters of Charity, Franciscans, Jesuits. We've always had a different agenda really, Mm -hmm. than the Catholic Church. It was the only way the Catholic Church could, this would interest a three, I would think, could managerially survive. That it was too wooden, it was too rigid. And so basically we Franciscans do our Franciscan thing. On the edge of the pyramid, we, we send incense toward the bishop in Rome. But... We don't really quote them that much. I hope that's not shocking to you. But once you're inside, you know that's true. And that's why bishops sometimes don't like us very much. But they can't do much about it. And I'm going to be honest, like you were honest with me. Why? Because the people tend to like us more than the bishops. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, yeah. I mean, if he's a Jesuit or a Franciscan or a Dominican... You tend to know, you you're, know. You're like Robin Hood. We're, 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 the, we're the exhaust valve. 
Yeah. We we fill in all the gaps in the church. We don't tend to run the parishes. Yeah. So the people don't expect from us the party line answer. Like we Franciscans used to be famous for uh, hearing confessions. People would come to us because they knew we wouldn't be harsh. Hmm. You know, that we were always told to be merciful and taught to be understanding of people's mistakes. And that became our public persona. And it was very often true. That's yeah. good. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. If you ever read uh, Angela's Ashes, you probably didn't about what it was like to grow up Irish and Catholic. And there's this dear Franciscan who hears this little boy's teenage confession and it breaks open his heart, you know. Oh. So that's our good that's image. That's our good image. Oh, that's we good. have our mistakes too. Well, yeah. I, I like your yeah. image. That's yeah. good stuff. Okay. There's something you said earlier that we definitely have to talk about because right. it kind of scares me as a Protestant. What? You talked about the cosmic Christ. Oh, yes. Okay. Now, I've, I've done some reading on this. You have the idea that, like in the synoptics, you have Jesus the micro, like Jesus of Nazareth. But if you go to maybe more Paul and John, you have the eternal Christ right. mystery, the That's the right. macro. That's right. Okay. Tell, you got to yeah. unpack well, that. I know you talked to Colossians. Did you go to the Christ in Colossians, Ephesians, and the prologue to John's Gospel. Okay, Ephesians. Those are the three big first chapters okay. that reveal the cosmic Christ. That was much more our Franciscan Christology. Okay. Was this, and why? Because if you know anything about the life of Francis, he wasn't an educated man. He wasn't a theologian. He was an intuitive Italian layman genius, mm -hmm. spiritually speaking. And he spoke, this would sound new age, if I'd say, no, brother, son, sister, moon, sister, fox, brother, duck. Mm -hmm. The whole universe was relational. It was brother and sister. It was one cosmic mystery of Christ. So the early Franciscan philosophers, building on that, we developed an alternative orthodoxy. We were never called heretics because it was too much in the scriptures. But it was just paying attention to different things. And I must admit that almost all mainline Protestant theology, without realizing it, basically accepted the mainline Catholic positions on things. The atonement and the divinity of Christ, the, the virgin birth and all these things that, you know, would sort of be mainline Catholic t teaching are unquestioned. For all Protestants thought they reformed us, in many ways they're just like us. Yeah. It's the same thing it, with a little window dressing change here or there. We were truly much more an alternative in the 13th century, but you couldn't rebel in the 13th century. The, the only church in the West was the Catholic Church. So yeah. you found a way to emphasize your different things, as I said, on the edge. So we did that with Christ, that we emphasized the eternal, what we eventually call the second person of the Blessed Trinity, who existed from all eternity, who took form in Jesus. So the first Bible in Franciscan theology was creation. That when God decided to manifest what, what's going on inside of God, for God to show himself, that was the world. Let there be light. Okay. The second day, the third day, the fourth day, the animals, the trees, the, the seas, the waters, the fish. This is the first Bible. 
for Franciscans. Now, okay. if you want a scripture, Romans one twenty. Oh, you got it. I know All right. where you're going. Ro- Romans okay. one twenty. For since the grace of the world, God's yeah. invisible qualities. Yeah. We, we got that. Yeah. Okay. And yet, you got to admit. I got to admit that that isn't the majority of the texts. The majority of the texts are those found in the Synoptic Gospels, where we have the. Jesus, the microcosm of the macrocosm, the personalization in a moment of time mm-hmm. of what was always true. All right? God has always been compassionate, outpouring, loving, but the word became flesh, John yeah. 1, 14, Okay, That had to become manifest. You were largely told about the personal manifestation, rightly so. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was too of the personal Jesus who was born in Bethlehem, lived and died and walked the map of the human journey for us. But for some reason, Protestant theology never grabbed on to the cosmic notion of Christ. And so, okay, I'm, I'm trying to piece this together. First of all, Go ahead. thank you for giving me book, chapter, and verse, because you mm-hmm. know, you as a that. Protestant, it makes me yeah. feel a whole lot more comfortable. Well, I'm okay. actually comfortable doing it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and obviously that's part yeah. of the reason why Protestants mm-hmm. connect you, because you're, you're, you're a Bible guy. I like it. And so... This idea that Christ has been pre-existing, he's there from all time, and he's revealed as Jesus of Nazareth, but that's not... You know, how Acts says it is just the opposite. You're on the right course. Jesus became the Christ. Oh, that's in, right. In the first sermons in Acts. Acts 2, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah. He, he's now Lord and Messiah. Wasn't that the... He was Lord. He was resur- he's something as Lord and Messiah. And Lord and Christ. That's and right. Christ, yeah. Revealed, uh, named as Lord and Christ. It's it's said in a number of ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But are you arguing that, or is this idea that this Christ has been there all along, and so we see him in Jesus of Nazareth? That's right. But to say it's just that would be diminishing the That's fullness right. of the mystery of, of Christ. The, now, and and what gives us really the second punch for believing this is. Paul's doctrine of the body of Christ, you know. Paul's great message, and I became convinced of this from N.T. Wright, by the way, that the new temple is the human person. Hmm. And N.T. Wright says that is the supreme idea of Paul. The new temple is the human person, which he then fully develops in the corporate person of the doctrine of the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, it's the incarnation taken to its logical end. <laughs> okay, you're you're really doing a number on me because two things I can't disagree with. One, book, chapter, and verse, and the other is Tom Wright. No, so when you're using both of those, it's really hard for me to have a case to, to, to argue against because it makes so much sense. Yeah, it really does. It's good stuff. And I promise you, uh, please don't be afraid, this will no way lessen your love or appreciation for the absolute meaning of Jesus in human history. It will, in fact, multiply it tenfold. And let me tell you just a very practical reason. If in the next decade we discover on these 60 billion planets there is life on other planets, statistically it's very likely. I'm not a necessary believer in that. I'm not a disbeliever in that. But let's just, for the sake of discussion, say it happens. Okay. If we limit Jesus to this planet, to what happened in this world 2,000 years ago, the Christian religion is going to be in for major problems. Huh? Because did Jesus save this other world? Was it necessary? Did they sin? Did he die for their sins? 
The whole thing is too much a tribal religion unless you recognize that Christ is Jesus' eternal name and cosmic name and not his last name, which is the way we see it. That, that okay, so the other option is to think that there is once a Martian Jesus who is out on some alien planet, or we could just think that God is... Well, the, that the eternal Christ could have taken many manifestations. I'm not a believer in that. I'm not trying to push toward a belief in aliens or something. <laughs> I'm really not. Even though you're, you're near Roswell, New Mexico. I, don't, but, I was uh, wondering if yeah. Area 51 too long. Uh, it's... But, but we logically, theologically, have to accept that God could have taken millions of manifestations. The eternal Christ mm-hmm. so you, could have taken you, many manifestations. You said Jesus' resurrection is not a one-time miracle of bodily resuscitation as much as a needed drama to focus our attention on a presence that has always been available yeah. since the beginning. Yeah. Do you see how this takes away from these people who want to deny the resurrection. I, I'll end up, if you stay with me, very conservative Christian. I believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ. Mm-hmm. And I believe that's absolutely necessary because God loves the, the amalgam of body and spirit. He doesn't just raise up spirit. He raises up body, new heaven and new earth. So uh, the, uh, the, the, now the resurrection of Christ is no big surprise, of Jesus, is no big surprise. Because, of course, the Christ is eternal. And this Christ mystery went through this very real, very real drama of death. But resurrection was inevitable, certain, of course. Yeah. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, what happened in him, is a foretaste and promise and guarantee of what's going to happen to all of us, to the whole universe. So, so Jesus is the map, the almost perfect map, of what's going to happen in every human life and in human history. And in the final chapter is resurrection and ascension. Return to where we started. Wow. Return to God. If someone asks you to spell out what that looks like, the last chapter... How do you just describe it? How do you define? We're running out of time. No, we're not. I, I forgive me for looking at my no, no, watch. No, no, no. I'm enjoying talking to you thoroughly. Well, we we've uh, done an, like an a, an hour and fifty. I've never done a podcast over an hour, so this is. Oh no, I'm this, glad to talk to you. But what did you just ask? Okay, me so if someone's going to ask you, what does the final chapter look like? Well, first of all, I'd have to be true to my biblical notion of belief and say I don't know. I don't know. Okay. All right, <laughs> but. I believe what we refer to very often glibly as the second coming of Christ. I believe whenever human beings see this confluence of divine spirit in the material universe, Christ has come again. Whenever, Whenever we bring that to consciousness, when you adore your little girls and thank God for giving them to you. That's a moment of the return of Christ. Do you understand? Now, I'm not denying that there might well be such a thing as described in the Gospels of the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Mm -hmm. Um, That's fine. But I don't know. I I don't know. Um, I do know that Christ is coming again and again and again and again. But the general belief of the tradition, the perennial tradition, was that all of these smaller 
lives were going to coalesce into one great history. You look at history right now and you say, my gosh, it sure doesn't look like we're getting closer to unitive consciousness, does it? Almost the more we move forward, the more the pushback seems to show itself. So I don't know what the final moment of history. Well, you know, there just in the last month, there have been scientists who are saying that they believe the universe is eternal. What? <laughs> well, I thought what? it was going to explode and yeah. our, our Earth was going to run into the sun. I don't know. I don't know science, but that was argued about in the 13th century. Is the universe eternal? Now remember, you and I can't think that. We don't know how to think any notion of eternal. But is this mystery, if God is eternal, then God's manifestation could well be eternal, which is creation, mm -hmm. which could mean the Christ is forever coming again. But is there an evolution of Christian consciousness? We have to say there is. I mean, slavery is unthinkable to us now. Yeah. And yet it wasn't. As little as 150 years ago. That's amazing to think. It really is amazing. And so human beings are becoming more like Christ, little by little by little. And yet the closer we get to it, it almost feels like there's more opposition to it. Hmm. Really. Interesting. But thank you for staying with me and, and not uh, thinking I'm saying more than I'm saying or less than I'm saying. Because it is revolutionary for the typical mainline Catholic and for the Protestant. Because almost no Protestant theology was creation-centered. Yeah. It was all based in words. Remember, the, the printing press was coterminous with Luther. Mm -hmm. right? We don't so, have the Reformation yeah, without the ability to read books. Without yeah. books. But, and this will help you be more patient with the first 1,500 years. <laughs> Remember, most Catholics couldn't read, right? They couldn't read or write. And we chained the Bible to the cathedral wall because it took a year to copy one. Wow. And the only people who could read were the clergy. So that's why we have these stained glass windows and these statues, I know, which all look pagan to you. But they reflect that first 1,500 years. For good and for ill. It's yeah. not all bad. No. Yeah. Just, and same with the written word of the Bible. Thank God for the written word. Thank God. But we got to know, here's non-dual thinking. There's a good side to it and there's a bad side to it. You know that now we're trapped in words. And we argue about words because words are oppositional. Mm -hmm. they're, they're made to distinguish this from, from that. that. Yeah, yeah, so the, the word became flesh. We and go. we like to return the favor and flash right back into word. Into the word. Did I steal yeah. that from yeah. you? I probably well, I've did. I said it, but others have said it. <laughs> others have said it. That's yeah. the problem. I've read too much of your stuff. I don't know it's your idea <laughs> and what I stole from you and Tom Wright and whoever. Yeah. But hey, this has been an absolute blast. Thank you so much for talking with me. You're welcome. It has been a lot of fun. So thank you so much. You're a lot of fun. Thank you, Luke. <laughs> and, and by the way, we talked on the phone once um, a year ago Was or something like that. Ago? And... Um, you at one point referred to me as cute on the phone call, and I just want to say thank you for not calling me cute again this time. <laughs> <laughs> and I hadn't even seen <laughs> Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.